The Old Testament reading is a responsive reading. comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, verses 13 and 19. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain, prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads of love. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask for the good way is. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. I have one watchman over you. Listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. Hear, O earth, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their schemes, because they have not listened to my words and have rejected my law. The New Testament reading today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the inerrant and infallible word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's turn in the scripture to Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. What are we doing in the gospel according to Luke? We've been here for two years, line by line. What are we doing? The Son of God became flesh. The incredible truth of the incarnation that God became flesh. We've been looking at his life and the power of his life. What's it like when God becomes flesh? flesh and becomes the son of God and the son of man. We've looked not only in his life, we've looked for the reason that he came. We've seen his ministry focused first on his identity. Who am I? And then it began to focus on what I've come to do. What did he come to do? And where is he now? We're looking at all of these great truths in the gospel according to Luke. Before we look at Luke 19, 41 through 44, let's pray together and ask him to teach us. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests. And we come carrying our concerns. We come carrying others that we would pray for before you. Just as you ask us to take the gospel to the world around us. You've also asked us to come as your priests, bringing others before you in our prayers. Our Father, teach us to be diligent about that. We pray that we would be diligent as individuals, whether 
we're in grade school or high school or college, whether we are in our homes every day, ordering those homes, or whether we're in our work, our vocation. Father, teach us to proclaim Christ, to, to somehow with our words or with our lives speak the gospel to the world around us. But teach us, Father, also to be priests, to come as individuals before you and then come as a corporate body on the Lord's Day morning before you. Our Father, we thank you for the healings that you have brought, for the relief you have brought. We thank you for how you have mended marriages and families in this place. And we come once more asking, Father, that you would bless Jim Bennington, bless him and the new place where he will be. We pray that, that Father, he will become acclimated to that. We pray that you would bless his care. We pray for Billy Griggs, that you would bless him and strengthen him for these days. We pray for Vicki Anderson, that these treatments will be effective, that you would heal her. We pray for Sheila Jeffries, that you would draw her close to you, cause her to remember your gospel. We pray that you would bring healing. Bless Sydney, Father. We pray that you would continue to heal that knee. Keep her from complications. Now, as we open your word, we open your word knowing that John Sartell cannot speak, cannot teach, so that it will make any difference in our lives. He cannot speak and change our hearts. So once more, we ask, Father, that we would hear your voice in this room this morning. Speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Change us, Father. For some of us, it will be a continuing of a change that took place a long time ago. But maybe for some of us, it will be that first change. Perhaps for the first time. Oh, Father, have mercy on us and teach us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When God wept. Somewhere in that incredible parade, that celebration that we saw last week of of Jesus coming down on that donkey from the, from the Mount of Olives. And the crowd, the throng, singing to the Messiah, acknowledging that the Messiah was finally entering Jerusalem. Somewhere in that scene, I think it was probably at the top of the Mount of Olives before. I don't think this passage is chronological. I think that he probably spoke the words that we read this morning before he got to the city gates when from the Mount of Olives he could look and see. The, and he had a panorama. And I think that's when he spoke. And then commenced that great celebration that we saw last week. But whenever it was, 
There are great ironies in this scene. We've already noted that this excited crowd thought that the Messiah was coming to Jerusalem to ascend to the throne of Israel, the throne of David, and overthrow the Romans and leave the nation to a new world prominence. The irony was that he had come to die on a cross, not rule on an earthly throne. There's another irony. They expected the immediate future of Jerusalem to be glorious, to be wonderful. Jesus here prophesies that the immediate future of Jerusalem was judgment and utter devastation. Let's look. Let's look closer at these words that Jesus spoke that were so full of pathos. First, I want you to see in this passage that the passion of Christ is evident. The, the passion of Christ is manifested. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Tears denote passion. They may be tears of joy. They may be tears of sorrow. They may be tears of pity. But they denote passion. If they're not pretended tears, if they're not Counterfeit tears. They always denote passion. You know where that word passion comes from? We use the word passion to denote strong feelings. You have strong feelings. Some people have strong feelings of passion about golf. So others have a passion about music or about horses. We say sometimes say to people, what's your passion? The English word passion, though, comes has an unusual background. It comes from the Greek word pasco, the Latin word passio. Those two words both mean the same thing. They mean suffering. Suffering. Well, what does our passion have to do with suffering? In Acts 1-3, it's there on your scripture sheet. We read, to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many Proofs. It's talking about Jesus. The Greek word there is pasco, the word from which we get our word passion. That's why we refer to the sufferings and crucifixion of Christ as the passion of Christ. Think about it. When one is willing to suffer for a cause, when one is willing to suffer for a purpose, for a love, then we say he is passionate about that cause or that purpose or that love. You don't suffer for that of which you are ambivalent. If, you, if you're apathetic about something, you're not going to suffer for it. Suffering denotes passion. Hence, we get our word passion. We look here and we see the passion of Christ. He's willing to suffer. He's passionate about something. He's willing to suffer for it. I love the, this picture of Jesus as a son of God incarnate. He wept. His tears denote passion. Some think about God as being dispassionate, as being far away, as being distant, as being capricious. That's not the picture we see in the Bible. You don't get that picture of God in Scripture. What's the most famous Scripture. If I were to ask you, 
What in all of Scripture? What's the one that's most often quoted? For God so loved the world. For God was so passionate about the world that He gave His only Son. Why would He give His only Son for the riffraff of this world? Passion. There's an anthem that I love to hear sung by church choirs. It was written by Mark Hayes. It's very unusual. The anthem goes like this. And the Father will dance over you in joy. He will take delight in whom he loves. Is that a choir I hear singing? The praises of God? No. The Lord himself is exalting o'er you in song. He will joy over you in song. He will joy over you in song. That's unusual, isn't it? But it's scripture. It's based on Zephaniah 317. That's also on your scripture sheet. The Lord your God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. In this passage, that passage, in the passage that we saw this morning, we read this morning, you see passion. Of God, the passion of Jesus Christ. You see the passion as he looks with pathos, sadness, utter sadness on a coming destruction. At the same time, we see a passion of God for his people that he exalts over us. Think about that. This morning, you're able to say it's no small thing. The father was so passionate about you and about me. That he gave his son for us. Yet while we were still sinners. The passion of Christ manifested. Secondly, I want you to see a heart that wept over lostness. Look at verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. His statement explains his tears. This is why I'm crying. He's weeping over the lostness of Jerusalem. On September 11, 2001, we saw a massive loss of life in this country. It was on the television, live in front of us. And while it was taking place, we wept. And afterwards, we wept. We wept over the sinful, sinless, senseless loss of life. We wept over children in the nurseries and those buildings that were killed. We wept because we love our country and nothing like this had ever happened inside of our borders. Those tears were something like the tears that Jesus wept. Just as we saw the planes plunge into the towers, just as we saw buildings collapse, Jesus was looking to the future, to the near future, in just a short while. And he saw a devastation that was coming to Jerusalem. He saw the Roman armies coming with such destruction that Jerusalem would not recover. You need to know this. Less than 40 years after Jesus said these words, just four decades, that's all. Titus, the son of the emperor Vespasian, laid siege to Jerusalem with a huge Roman army. The siege lasted five months. Jerusalem was 
overcrowded because as the Roman army approached from the north, the people in the hinterland fled into the city. It was packed and there was no food. Thousands starved. Josephus, a Jewish historian who was there, assigned with the Roman army, wrote about this destruction. Listen to what he said. This, this was his from his eyesight. Now, those that perished by famine in the city, the number was prodigious, and the miseries they underwent were unspeakable. For if so much as a shadow of any kind of food did anywhere appear, a fight was commenced, and the dearest friends fell fighting one another over that food. Josephus said that in their hunger, they chewed leather sandals in their leather belts. The Romans, Joseph, or, or, or Josephus said that the Romans crucified up to 500 Jews a day outside the city walls. He said that there were so many thousands and thousands and thousands of crosses. It was hard to walk around outside the city. He wrote of the final fall. While the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike, were massacred. It was a bloodbath. That's why Jesus was weeping. He knew it was coming. He knew that it was happening because the city was spiritually bankrupt, spiritually lost. Jesus wept over their lostness. I think that we in the evangelical church have not learned that characteristic from Jesus. I don't think we weep over the lostness of our land. I think we get mad sometimes and we want to launch all these political efforts. We get mad and we complain with each other. But we don't feel a sadness of soul as we look at the lostness of our universities. We complain about it. But we don't cry over it. The lostness that's denoted by our disranked materialism. The lostness of a society that's turned sports into gods and stadiums into temples of worship. The lostness of meaningless pleasure. Most of us have never heard of a man named Colonel George Clark and his wife, Sarah. He was into real estate in Chicago during the last part of the 19th century. Colonel Clark married Sarah Dunn in 1873. He was very successful, very wealthy, and they were part of Chicago's high society. But the Lord opened their eyes to the lostness in the streets of Chicago. Men wandering in the streets of Chicago were homeless, jobless. And they began a mission. It was just a small mission at the beginning. It was located at 386 South Clark Street. It was known as Colonel Clark's Mission. But the mission grew. As it grew, Dwight L. Moody, one of the great evangelists known all over the world, he was from Chicago, suggested that the mission be called the Pacific Garden Mission. 
And if you had lived at that time, and you were, especially if you were a Christian, you would have known about the Pacific Garden Mission. Five and six hundred men would gather in the evening to be helped and also to listen to Colonel Clark speak. R.A. Torrey, another great evangelist like Dwight L. Moody, wrote about Colonel Clark. He said in the beginning he just couldn't understand. He would go hear Clark and he said he was the most boring speaker I ever heard. But he said the men sat in rapt attention, hanging on every word that he spoke. Now, Moody and Tory were great evangelists, and they spoke often at the mission. But they were not received by the men like Colonel Clark. Tory said that one night as he watched, he finally came to understand Clark's secret. He said that Clark was so deeply burdened about the lostness of these men that from the very beginning of any message, Clark would be on the verge of tears. Tears because these men were so wretchedly lost. There was a time in Clark's ministry when he was embarrassed by his tears and he asked asked God to take them away. And he said he did get some relief, but he found he wasn't so burdened. And he got back on his knees and said, God, give me back my tears. People, we need to learn from Jesus to weep over the world around us, the lostness of the world around us. I'm convinced that you and I believe the gospel. I'm convinced that at Christ Presbyterian Church, we love Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that we're teaching and preaching the truth in this place. But why are we having more impact? Maybe it's because we're not moved by the lostness of the world around us. We look at it and there's an apathy. There's nothing we can do. Jesus wept over the lostness. I was looking at our hymn book and thinking about it. There's hymns all through the, the Trinity hymn book. We don't have hymn books here, but the Trinity hymn book is the official hymn book of our denomination. Great hymns in it, and we use them here. They're printed in our bullet. But there's not many hymns about this. And I turned through the hymnal looking. There's an old hymn written by Fanny Crosby. You know her. She wrote so many gospel hymns. But it's not in our hymn book anymore. And I I think it's because many think the hymn is passe. But maybe it's because we've lost our passion. It goes like this. Many of you know it. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Snatch them from pity. Snatch them in pity from sin in the grave. Weep o'er the erring one. Lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Though they are slighting him, still he's waiting, waiting the penitent child to receive. Plead with them earnestly. Plead with them gently. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. 
Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. You hear Jesus. You see him weep over Jerusalem. You hear him say the words that he did. He would have loved the words that Fanny Crosby wrote. The passion of Christ manifested. A heart that wept over lostness. And finally, I want you to see an often offered grace that wept over a final rejection. This is so serious. An often offered grace. A grace that had been offered often that wept over a final rejection. Look at verse 42. And if you, speaking of Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Those words imply that there had been many, many opportunities. And now, even now, there was one last opportunity. There's a time, people, when ignored grace. Grace is often given and given over and over and over again. It's offered. There's a time when such grace is replaced with immediate justice. God's grace will not go on and on and on forever. There comes a last opportunity. There are last opportunities. I'm not being overly dramatic. I can name many men, women, and young people who have visited in hospitals, in homes. They were sick and they were dying. And I've looked back on it and I've had to ask myself, was I faithful? I fear sometimes I didn't make the gospel plain. I didn't realize that this was a last opportunity. I fear that sometimes as these folks were on the edge of eternity, I was not so concerned that this might be the last time. When I was writing this this week, I could look on the wall in my office and I could see a, a picture. It's very precious to me. It's a picture of a troop ship in the South Pacific. It's a troop ship for the 4th Marine Division. And there on the ship that day, you can see other ships out there. You can, you can hear the wind. You can hear the noise. But here on this ship, Hundreds of men gathered. They're sitting on turrets, on platforms, anywhere where they can find to steady themselves. It's the Lord's Day services. In the middle of that is my father preaching. He was a chaplain in the Marine Corps. That picture is powerful to me, not just because that's my father. It's powerful to me because in just a few days, most of those men had left this life. They were going to Iwo Jima and most of those men would die. A last opportunity. Jesus was saying this was Jerusalem's last opportunity. No one in Jerusalem would have believed it. Jerusalem was a great city. It was on a major trade route. It was prosperous. No one would have believed that it would cease to exist in 40 years. 
Folks, as sure, as sure as that happened in Jerusalem. Fayette County will have a last opportunity before God. The Mid-South, Memphis, will have a last opportunity. There'll come a day. America will have a last opportunity. There will be a time when we turn our back on God and his grace for the last time. I'm not talking about the generic God that our society has invented. I'm talking about the God of this book. I'm talking about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why did they not get it? Why did they not recognize Christ? He had raised the dead, made the blind to see. Look at verse 42. And if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. God did not come down and supernaturally blind them to the truth. He didn't blind them say, lest they recognize this. This blindness came quite naturally from the spiritual decay handed down from generation to generation to generation as every, each generation before them had turned their back on God's grace. Every generation, it's a truth of civilization, every generation will build on the platforms left, the foundations left by previous generations. Righteousness or unrighteousness never stays at the same level as it goes from one generation to the next. That next generation will either build on the righteousness of the last generation and thus increase the righteousness, or they will build on the unrighteousness of the last generation and thus increase in unrighteousness. Think about it. What, what embarrassed us 30 years ago, 40 years ago. What made us blush? Whatever it was, it doesn't cause us to blush anymore. It causes us to become normal. Jeremiah spoke about that. We read it this morning in the scripture. In our responsive reading from Jeremiah 6.15, it's on your scripture sheet. Were they ashamed when they committed such abominations? No. They were not at all ashamed. They couldn't even blush anymore. We have raised an entire generation, several generations, since 1970. And now, remember the awful battle? about abortion back in the late 60s and early 70s. It was a real battle, fight. And now, abortion is just normal. And could you imagine a sitting governor of any state in 1970 advocating post-birth abortions 
just a few weeks ago, the sitting governor publicly advocated that. Present generation, even the church, is condoning homosexuality. Advocating with a passion the morality of it. What's happened? As we build, as we build additional unrighteousness on the unrighteousness of the past. You know what's sobering about the concentration camps in Germany? What bothers and haunts me the most about it, I've read extensively about it, that normal, everyday people like you and I worked in those concentration camps. They knew they were there and worked in them. What happens as we continue in our sin, as we grow in our sin, we're blinded to its heinous nature. Jesus comes along and he tells us in our culture, points to something in our culture that's evil. And we laugh at him and tells him it's passe. What did Jesus say? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't understand that this was God's word, that this was the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Elijah. They were my prophets. Jesus made the blind to see, deaf people hear, paralyzed folks walk, he healed lepers, he stopped storms, he raised the dead. And they missed it. They crucified him. It always comes to this with individuals, with families, with nations. We either rejoice and wonder at his coming. We love his grace. We wonder that he died for us. Are we throw the Bible in the trash and crucify him? You say, well, John, this is Fayette County. This is Fayette County, Tennessee. You do realize that most people in Fayette County are not in church this morning. And they won't be in church next Sunday or the next Sunday or the next Sunday. There's no doubt about it. Jesus has visited our land. He's visited Fayette County. He's visited the Mid-South. He's visited the United States of America. We've been greatly blessed. But you and I both know the truth. That our country is running, our culture is running, as quickly as our culture can, away from him and away from our world, away from his word. The last generations have thrown in this country, have thrown his word in the trash, and they've crucified Jesus. Our country's lost.
We need to weep. Our hymn. There is a Redeemer. And that's our message.